This podcast is brought to you by Digital One. Tell your story, connect with your audience, and build your brand with an engaging podcast. Learn more at digone.com. It's the Mount Freelance Show. It'll help your freelance grow. We're cracking jokes and talking to folks who are in the freelance know. Because it's the Mount Freelance Show. Oh, and this is our intro. That's correct. So take a seat and kick up your feet for the Mount Freelance Podcast Show. Oh, that's a cool song. Is that the Mount Freelance theme song, Andrew? It sure, it sure is. I am Andrew Dixon. You are Aaron James. Aaron, why are we doing this podcast? That's a good question because a lot of people said don't do a podcast. There's lots of them out there, but we ignored them. And we are hoping that our unique angle of bringing a experienced, savvy creative freelancer in to our studio slash virtual studio and interviewing them about their experience will be illuminating for you, our freelance audience. Well, and also for us because we're still freelancers and one of the cool things is freelance kind of unlocks opportunities with time and if you do it right money to do things that you don't get paid for like the Mount Freelance podcast. So Aaron, I'm looking here at the Mount Freelance website, which I believe you designed and I wrote and it says that Mount Freelance is actually a course and a, and a, and a member community um, and taught by us. And apparently we have over two decades combined freelance experience working for some of the biggest brands and agencies in the world. Oh, is this man. true? I think that is true. I mean, if it's on the internet, it's true. And <laughs> let's dig in. Aaron, you've worked with our next guest, correct? Yeah. Arlo Rosner is a commercial freelance producer. And uh, we actually never worked on a project together. He was always like working down the hall um, at a production company down in Venice, California when I was there. And uh, the cool thing about Arlo is he has all these other side businesses. And so what he's done is he's kind of used his his primary freelance job to unlock all these other cool opportunities. And a lot of them are restaurants and import um, alcohol from Mexico business. It's like very fascinating to see a guy that has... Uh, unlocked his potential and and these ideas and actually executes on them. We should give him a sash for for just being such a savvy freelancer. Absolutely. Arlo Rosner. So Arlo, if you um how many push-ups can you do? I can do a lot <laughs> fewer push-ups than business ventures I'm currently involved in. Cool. So <laughs> so like so like 3. No, oh, man. Know. Well, push-ups are easier than pull-ups. So. When is this going to air? Because I'm planning on starting to do a lot of push-ups are you, soon. Are you going to get shredded? <laughs> That's part of my pandemic plan, is to yeah. just get shredded. Hey, so you've had such a wild ride career. When, when someone just casually at a party is like, what do you do for a living? What do you, what do you tell them? Uh, I usually ask them, where do you want me to start? Because it's been a... As Aaron said, a pretty long and winding road. But for the most part, I pay the bills as a filmmaker. I've uh, started that career as a cinematographer, getting a film school degree, which very few of us end up actually getting. I was lucky enough to be a high school dropout that didn't go to college till he was 23. So I actually figured out that that's what I wanted to do before I went to school. So I started as a cinematographer, and that led to directing and trying to open a small boutique uh, production company, which I ran with a partner of mine and still close friend for a number of years and eventually kind of landed in the production realm as a freelance line producer. And that has led to a number of opportunities 
outside of production, um, mostly because of the freedom that it gives you to pay the bills and then have, for better or for worse, long periods of time where you have nothing to do. If you how how do you get hired for a, a production job? Like how what's that? Walk us through. And a lot of us probably know this, but I actually always find it. Everyone has a little bit different take. How if you get a, a phone call, who's calling you? What are they asking you to do? Well, it's, it's funny. A lot of people ask me that. What the process of how what I do and how I do it is. And I my my spiel that I've gotten down pretty well is that I relate it to the Mission Impossible movies, you know, where you're, you're sitting on a bench and someone walks up to you and hands you an envelope and says, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it? You know what I mean? And uh, you usually end up someone, usually a head of production or an executive producer or a marketing executive at a brand or company that you may be familiar with for one reason or the other or have been referred to by a friend. They have something they want to make and they have amount of money they want to make it with. And that's the mission. Should I choose to accept it? So often it's uh, it starts there. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to actually talk it through and tell them you need more money or you need the idea to be smaller or you need something that I think is a real joy. But often it's it's that cut and dry. This is your mission. Should you choose to accept it and you accept it and you have a creative product you need to deliver for a certain amount of money by a certain day and you don't sleep till it's done most of the time you're accepting the mission most times <laughs> tell us about some of the reasons or, or some of the things that would happen where you would just pass on it and then what's that process look like you know oftentimes i don't just pass i think that there's a conversation that can occur that uh through a number of questions uh, nearing and bordering interrogation, you can almost convince people that they shouldn't be asking you to do this or that they're not ready or that there's much more work to be done on their end before wasting their time and money on someone like me and the time and money of anyone else I would hire is, is worth it. And that usually leads to either, oh, well, you know, we'll call you back and the call never comes back. So I didn't really say no. I just kind of pointed out that they didn't really know what they were asking for yet. Or, you know, they come back and they've ironed it out a little bit and then we, we get to go do it. <laughs> this is potentially a dangerous question to ask, but what is, what do you, as a producer, is it more satisfying to be given like that perfect project with a great script and plenty of money and all the time in the world or the, the are the challenging projects where it's the half finished script with not enough money and no time is it, where do you get more sort of enjoyment from? I don't think there's ever enough money and there's never enough time. I've, I don't know where I came up with the phrase or learned it, but I, I always look at a project and it's usually the thing that I, I point to in that initial conversation rather than saying no. And I call it the bitch of the bunch. Uh, pardon the, pardon any uh, impropriety there. But to me, the, the, the bitch of the bunch is like, what about this thing is going to make it as hard as every other thing I've ever done? And it's, well, there's not enough money, so that's going to be the bitch of the bunch here. Or we have eight days to get visas into a country that requires 30. That's that's problem. You know, so there's always something. You know, I don't think I've ever come across a project that's just like, oh, look, we have enough money, enough time. The place we're going to travel and go to is very easy to get to, and they have very robust production support system. You know, by the end of it, we're going to have a couple days to take off and go to the beach and relax before we fly home and deliver two days early. Like, never. 
So there's always something. Sometimes it's the director you have to work with, or it's the creative team that just doesn't really grasp what their creative director might be telling them to do, and you have to navigate that. But I don't think there's ever one that just goes right. You know, that's something that I think we all would love to see happen in our lives once, but it's pretty rare. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you've had that moment where you have one job kind of bleeding into the next job and maybe can you talk about some of the some of the things that you um have learned about kind of how to juggle jobs and kind of how to transition from one job to the next? Yeah, I think the juggling jobs is crazy because again, I know talking freelance and brand work in particular, each job comes with a different brand. And if you're going to do it well and you're going to commit to it, there's a language to a brand, right? There's messaging. There's years often that go into a brand story that you have to immediately translate. You have days to do what companies take years to accomplish, which is learn this mission. So the hardest thing is kind of balancing that identity on behalf of each client. You know, beyond that, I think... It's the teams you work with that get you through that. If I have a solid uh, production manager and I have a team that I can kind of begin to strategize that transition and strategize that overlap, if you have the right team and can keep them working and keep them on your team rather than them having to stray off and find someone else, then those transitions become easier and easier. What it, when you're building a team, what is your, what do you, you know, do you have sort of a, I mean, partly it's just who's available, right? But what, do you have a sort of a philosophy or something you're looking for when you're maybe auditioning someone or, you know, the, the question you ask a fellow producer when you've, when you've gotten a referral? Um, I think that there's no, not a real script to it, but it is, it's about human connection. It's about a sense of humor. You know, if you can get on the phone with me, at least it's about a sense of humor. Another thing that a lot of people say is, you know, every, there's so many people that are good at what we do. We're all very ununique. But uh, who can you lock yourself in a room with for four weeks and not want to kill? You know, and I think the best, the 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 better you get at figuring that out quickly, the better your teams are going to be. You have to have a certain synergy when it comes to your personalities. And if you don't have that, then you're never really going to build a strong team. And I'm always proud when the people I've assembled go off and build their own teams. I've had a number of production managers that have, that production manager produces their own job and everybody moves up a rung with that person. That to me says, well, that I built a good team there. Here in Portland, Aaron, we can get Stumptown coffee whenever we want, but what do folks who live elsewhere need to do? Um, I, I'm not sure, actually. They can go to the internet. And they can actually sign up to get a subscription service where every other Monday, fresh whole bean coffee is going to be sent to their door. Oh, my gosh. So it's like a magazine that you can drink. Oh, it, do they grind it? They don't because they don't want any flavor to be lost in the mail. Oh. If you enter MT Freelance at checkout, you're going to get 50% off your first order. Oh, my gosh. Could you bump that up to half off that first order? I think I have the authority. Yes. Okay. Half well, off. Let's do it. MT Freelance at checkout at stumptowncoffee.com. One of the big challenges of freelance is like, you know, we, we all we all kind of navigate um, feelings of um, kind of security, you know, that, you know, and I think there's, there's uh, people that are used to working full time, you know, freelance seems like a big, a big shift. How, how do you um, navigate 
the um, uncertainty of freelance? I don't know if you can ever learn to manage that. I think that the key to it is is knowing that there's more to you than the job itself if you choose to be freelance and letting that drive why you do it that way. It can be your family. It can be roses in your garden. But there's got to be something else that's more important than going to work every day. And if not, then just go to work every day, right? And who who needs the stress of wondering where the next job's going to come from? And who needs the stress of itemizing every expense in your life to make sure that you can afford to pay your mortgage or your rent because you have to do your own taxes? Why not just get a paycheck with all the taxes taken out and know that same amount's going to come every two weeks? To me, the only reason why not is there's something more important that's driving you that makes that risk worth it. To me, I really, I strive in this business as art world. I love building businesses. I love building things. I love watching that same team building, that same machine building. So I've done that a number of ways with a number of people over a number of years. But that's kind of that freedom to do that is what makes it worth the risk and the stress of hoping that next job comes down the pipe. So you're you're not into personal projects. You're into you're into side businesses or new businesses. Yeah, a personal project to me is like a new business. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not. I you know I I built a record shelf for my vinyl. Sure, like I have side projects, but I really I love big ideas. So it might also be that you're looking. Could also maybe just say spend all that time in between jobs looking for your way out, kind of. You know, think of it as this endless Mobius strip of job after job after job. And if, if, you, if you don't have some sort of vision of getting yourself out of that loop, at least for me, the loop will drive you mad, you know, and you'll just end up kind of giving up and getting a job or, I don't know, dying. I don't know what you'll do, but I think you've got to have a, a big enough thing driving you that's aimed toward getting out of that loop. I think I think what freelance can do and and it's you know mount mount freelance is a testament to this where because of a little bit more control you have over over your time over you know your ability to make more in a shorter period of time it kind of unlocks these opportunities. This podcast wouldn't exist if if we didn't ha- weren't able to unlock you know some of that but you were telling me about Superiority Burger down in the, is it Lower East Side? Um, or no, Upper East Side. No, um, East Village. No, I got it right. No, it's in... East Village. You call it and, the Lower uh, East Side. T- so tell us, tell us about the restaurants. The restaurant Superiority Burger is a all, all vegetarian, often vegan, fast, casual restaurant. Um, it's a brainchild of a chef named Brooks Headley. And uh, my brother is actually much more in the restaurant business than I. He was a founding member of uh, Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that has become quite well-known. And um, I think Superiority Burger, for him, was a chance to take more of a grasp on the side of the restaurant industry that he wanted to be most a part of. And he worked with Brooks to build a team that could make a restaurant a reality. Brooks had kind of been doing pop-up restaurants, and it was going swimmingly. He's a very accomplished chef. Um, You know, together with Gabe, that's my brother, um, they put a team together that could build Brooks his own restaurant, basically. 
And I think that's a perfect testament to me being a producer and me having, you know, time after time after time having a problem to solve. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the exact same thing at the end of the day. It's kind of like making a much lower budget commercial every single day for the rest of your life. <laughs> but, 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 but I, uh, you know, I was involved because of that. My brother knows I'm a good producer. He knows I can solve those problems. He know he knew I could navigate that world in a way that maybe people that just worked in a kitchen might not. And, uh, my brother kind of bridged the gap of those two worlds really well. And, you know, at the, the end of the day there, it was really very much everything I learned about being a producer that I could just apply objectively to a new, different business. If you take any freelancer with more than 10 years of experience and they go to get an MBA or some sort of business degree, they'll go, well, I've been doing this. I've been the business for the last 10 years. I've been running my own P&L. I've been, doing the, I've been having to permit myself. I've been having to make sure my business is in compliance with the state. I've had to insure myself often. I've had, you know, workers' compensation. Everything that kind of goes into this frantic, what am I doing with my life? I'm just a freelancer. You're actually running a business. You know, whether it's a restaurant or anything else, it's all those same basic principles. Love that. Beautiful. And uh, I don't think enough people in our industry look at it that way. A lot of people look at freelancing as being on their way to somewhere when they're really, if they choose to be already there, you know, and you can run a very good business with a very strong profit and loss statement and, you know, a pretty good profit margin, to be honest, when you're, when your overhead can be as low as you choose because it's your own soul. <laughs> we love this because this is, of course, like the big aha in the first couple of video courses of Mount Freelances. <laughs> you have to change your mindset. You're not just a gig worker. You're not just in between, you know, full-time jobs. You know, you're, you're running a business, whether that's for, you know, 20 years or two. I love what you're saying because I think it triggers a lot of like fresh thinking around, um, around what might be um, maybe broken or not optimized within the sequences of a basic business, which, which even without a business degree, we all pretty much know, you know, kind of just what the basics are. So that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think optimize, you said optimize, that's a great way to put it. I mean, people need to optimize their skill sets and they need to also expand their their capabilities and offerings. You know, you don't have to, as a designer, as a producer, as a anything, just be that. If you can shift your mindset to, yeah, I can do whatever it is you need, tell me what it is, it doesn't always have to be you, and that's, that's how your business can ebb and flow and expand. And you actually have a lot of freedom because there's still zero overhead in just offering the services of those that you know can do them yeah, what makes your history so interesting is is you you know <laughs> you think most people when they become a cinematographer that's the next <laughs> until you retire <laughs> you know or maybe there's a, a second career in your sixties but for you what was that were you kind of always entrepreneurial or was there sort of a, a shift that suddenly you went from being like wait a minute I can I can how do you go from a cinematographer like to I can run a production company and, and start one. Uh, I think I was always an entrepreneur and still am. I mean, I used to sell candy on this, on school. Hold on. Let me preface this. I was also a child, but I used to sell candy on the schoolyard. You're like, dang, last week. Yeah, no, this is, this is less recently. So this, so is, this COVID, all these yeah, schools closing yeah, is really hurting you. It's been killing me. <laughs> so I think that that spark has always been there. 
And uh, so when it came to being a filmmaker, I think being a cinematographer, as great as it was, and I hate that I stopped pre-Red, pre-Airy Mini, pre-all this great tech, you know, I was right at the end of that when it came to the tools I worked with. But I think what I saw on a film set was that I just wanted to know more about the whole picture. I wasn't satisfied with just the departmental aspect of being a cinematographer. You know, there's just a certain chain of events that I think an entrepreneur thinks of in the terms of growth and and where your mind takes you. That's the way my mind tends to wander. So you, you are part of arguably two of the businesses hardest hit by the pandemic between film production and and the restaurant business. So how, how have you kind of taken that same, you know, entrepreneurial what's next mindset or is there something out there that's giving you hope or inspiration, you know, through this, you know, um, time? it's tough to find what you would call hope and inspiration. I've got to credit my business partners with how they've handled the restaurant side of things. Cause I'm not, you know, not like I'm in New York helping to be frank. It's just a lot about communication, you know, and, and what they can manage to do with their vendors and with our landlords and things like that. Filmmaking was tough because I, I really, as much as I love it, I kind of wanted to take a step back because I didn't feel like, especially again with brand advertising, that maybe that it was quite worth it. So the notion of, of uh, getting back quickly wasn't some urgent thing for me. If I had to give a broad definition of being a freelance line producer, it's like my job is to gather dozens of strangers in an undisclosed location from anywhere from 10 to 72 hours and then allow them to disperse. It just felt like I wasn't going to do that. I didn't want to do that. And there, there was no brand or product that was worth doing that for. The most creative thinkers and companies use the same fundamental skills to crack ideas. They've just never been taught. Until now. (laughs) School of Ideas helps teams understand the essential skill set behind coming up with transformative ideas. So if you're a freelancer with a rich relative who's a CEO, tell them to hire School of Ideas. Learn more at schoolofideas.co. One thing that that you emailed me about a little while ago was um, something uh, that you're working on uh, a a look a liquor brand um called uh Ricea. Um Ricea. and yeah, you sent me a little info on that and I was super intrigued. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh Ricea de Una uh is a new liquor, newly arriving liquor into the country. Uh my friends Amber Sellers and Ethan Lavelle partnered up um and started a company called Recia Imports, and they've got a collective of farmers down in Mexico that are um, cultivating and fermenting this liquor. Recia, I think, um, from what I understand, is a lot more popular down in Mexico and is just emerging in the States. Hopefully we'll start seeing it in stores, first here in Venice Beach area and then outward from there. But that was, I think, another example of me being able to help them wrap their heads around that side of it. You know, once again, you have this great big idea. We got this booze in Mexico and we're going to sell it in Venice Beach and it's delicious, right? That's enough. Um, From what I can't remember about it, it's very delicious. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there's this whole thing in between. Import, export, getting things across the border, taxes, transportation, everything. But when you start making commercials or you start making films, you've had to do that, all of it. 
you know, I have to go through international import export uh, rigmarole just to bring cameras more than a certain value from here to Mexico. I've got to I've got to deal with import export. I've got to deal with with customs just to bring an Airy Mini to Mexico City. You've got to do a whole whole batch of stuff, you know. Let alone bringing a whole film crew, you know, twenty visas through, you know. So once again, it was just a matter of what I learned as a producer and a filmmaker that I could add a little bit to someone else's kind of goals, you know, and say, have have you thought this through really? You know, I'm just talking about someone talking with someone last night uh, who wants to, you know, for the sake purely of the community, build a skate park in northern India in Varanasi. And, uh, you know, we got to talking and really the big, the bitch of the bunch there is securing that land. You know, it's a great dream. You can build cheaply. Sure, the land's there, but like, do you really know? And, you know, then it becomes doing business in India, which is a whole different deal. And again, I think I've shot in India, so I, I know what it's like to have to do a deal in India. And, and so you can take a little bit of that experience and apply it to a new venture. And, you know, depending on your willingness and, and bandwidth and everything else, do you want to make that a profitable endeavor for yourself, or are you just there to lend an ear and a hand to people that that need it, that that you believe in their idea? But I think to me, it all just comes back to being a good filmmaker because some of the things they make us do are just absurd, you know. And we've all seen TV commercials, and we've all worked on creative where you're like, I can't, I can't believe we're, we're <laughs> I can't believe we're going to make this. This is absurd. And you know, you sit, you look through the camera lens or through Video Village, and you're looking at the monitor, going, "What? I th- th- wide forty foot golf cart with a bartender on it? What?" You know, and then you throw it away and the commercial airs for six weeks and that's the end of it. But, you know, when you hold on to what it took to, to build that and what it took to get it done, you can apply it to whatever you want to. What, what I love about your perspective is even going back to, you know, you saying, you know, liquor is all about logistics. I think most creative people would say it's all about the taste and it's about the label and it's about the brand we're building. And and I think a lot of freelancers, especially on the on the creative side of things, they're just thinking about the work and they're sort of not thinking about treating their their career as a business and sort of the logistics of what it takes to be a successful freelancer. So I'm I'm just really digging on what you're sharing here. Yeah, I I think that's what's missing. And a lot of people have it and they don't give themselves credit for it. And I notice it in in certain sides of the industry, it's there much more so, and certain sides it's just not. Like so many of my cameraman friends and camerawoman friends, um, they own their own gear and they rent it out to productions they're not on and they have a side loan out company where they're renting their camera and it's working when they're not and they're basically running a business for their equipment and then they're also a freelancer. And it's a whole, you know, in, it's a whole business that they're running. And other people just sit around and wait for the call, you know, and, and, and so you see it both ways, but but one way or the other, people that have a sensibility that says, this is a business I'm running, not a job I'm doing, they'll they'll be the best freelancers. And they'll be able to make a, a life of it and a career of it that at the end of the day, the, the time in between stops mattering as much. Because let's pretend you're a director of photography and you own a $200,000 camera package and you're financing it like any other person would finance a capitalized asset, Right. You uh, 
you're watching that money be made from your couch. So that time in between jobs matters a lot less, right? When the camera that you bought is out there making you $3,000 a day while you're sitting at home waiting for your next job. If you're really going to be a freelancer for, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, there's got to be there's got to be something else to it. Whether it's the way you build that freelance business or the things you build during your time off that make that time off feel like you're still working. Aaron, we got to buy a camera. Yeah. <laughs> Three feels I started doing math. I'm not good at math, but although wow. although I'll tell you at the at the speed they release cameras these days, I wouldn't say it's the best move. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys got to you, you know what you life. should do though. You should start a podcast. I hear there's like a There's none of there's them, a right? There's boom. No, there's <laughs> there's a boom right now. It's like yeah. it's like a gold rush. Yeah. Out there. We we've been uh We've been experiencing a lot of that that gold rush um, from the podcast. Um, in fact, uh, we're just kind of rolling this out in terms of announcing it to people. And uh, and the, of course, the one thing I saw was like a commercial that some uh, one of our uh, members actually posted that said, that "If you could do, if you could not do one, like don't start a podcast. If whatever you do during the pandemic, that's the last thing you should do. Don't do it." So Andrew and I just. Yeah. Ignored that. And uh but man, Ar- Arlo, um Arlo Rosner, um freelance producer, um entrepreneur, businessman, um dropping uh some real amazing stories and insight for us. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. All right. We have the exciting part of the show where uh, we get some questions from some of the great folks that listen to this podcast. All right, Aaron, we've got a, a, a question that came to us via Facebook. Um, this is a good one. Do you give repeat clients discounts according to frequency of work? Hmm. That is a good question. I think uh, the classic, it depends, <laughs> you know, applies here, but... Uh, Typically, um, I I think it's a it's a it's a really good reason to kind of establish your your rate on the higher end of things, and then it actually allows you to be flexible, and you can tell them, okay, yeah, hey, and and it does happen because there's sometimes there's a client that um, you know is like kind of a, a a big behemoth client has plenty of money, the agency is kind of flush with, with budget and and that type of thing is fine, and then they might work on something that's kind of cool and local, and they don't have the same budget. So if you can be flexible, I I'd say yes, but you can also kind of caveat it and say yes, I can work for that for this amount of time on this client, but you know once we move back into some of these other clients, I need to get back to my normal rate. Because I'm in demand. Yeah, the wor- the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you take a huge cut on your rate and commit to like six months or something, and then like the next week you start getting offers for, you know, full rate work that that is maybe as if not more enjoyable. Yeah. So, I think um, I think you always want to kind of give yourself an out, whether that's time or the project comes to an end, then I'll be back up to my to my normal rate. But I, I think is uh, it's it's very relational. So if you can keep um, keep the relationship good by maybe uh, you know kind of uh, 
you know, being a little flexible, I think that's a smart thing to do if it's some if it's a relationship you want to keep. Freelance is not all about the money, you know. So if you actually want to only work four days a week, what a great what a great counteroffer. Of course I'll give you a discount, but I take Wednesdays off. All right. Good answer, Andrew. I like that one. The Mount Freelance Podcast is handcrafted by the producers, mixers, and sound designers of Digital One, Portland, Oregon. Executive producer, Eric Stolberg. Post-producer, Kelsey Woods. Assistant engineer, Tristan Schmunk, who also created the theme song and incidental music. To learn more about Aaron, Andrew, and Mount Freelance, visit mtfreelance.com. Thanks for listening, and may your day rate be high and your vacations long. Digital One.